Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Cara, acne can be tough. Whether your kid is just starting to get breakouts or has been struggling with them for years, there's a great product that can help. Phyla is the ultimate game changer. It tackles acne right at its root cause, rebalancing the skin's bacteria and packing it with probiotic phages. Phyla harnesses the superpowers of probiotics, tiny warriors targeting and wiping out the acne-causing bacteria. In studies, Phyla slashed acne-causing bacteria by a whopping 90%. Phyla doesn't just fix acne you can see. It stops new breakouts in their tracks. It has no harsh chemicals and won't irritate or dry most skin. Phyla's three-step system is like a dermatologist-approved magic potion. Cleanse, apply serum, and moisturize twice a day. As a special treat for our listeners, you can grab 25% off your first order of Phyla. Head over to phylabiotics.com, enter code PUBERTY at checkout, and kickstart your family's journey to acne-free skin. Check out the link in our show notes for quick access. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, I'm Cara Natterson. And I'm Vanessa Cole bennett Each week, we dive into the what and how of raising kids through puberty, that roller coaster of physical and emotional shifts for kids and parents alike. Combining reliable science and relatable parenting strategies, we will all learn about, laugh about, and yes, maybe even cry about adolescence, ours and theirs. Today, I'm going to start by reading from the American Girl website, the bio of our guest, Valerie Schaefer. Valerie began her creative career at the Pleasant Company, which is now American Girl, in 1989 as a product developer and buyer of doll accessories. She went on to work in many areas of the company, including catalog marketing, public relations, special events, and creative services. In 1994, Valerie launched Orfink, a small creative agency. In addition to writing The Care and Keeping of You, she has authored numerous educational books for early readers. Valerie lives in a converted tobacco warehouse in rural Wisconsin with her husband, a photographer, and raised two sassy teenage daughters and a pair of absurdly spotted wool-eating cats. (laughs) One thing I want to highlight from this bio is that you, Valerie, are the original author of The Care and Keeping of You, a book first published in 1998, now with at least 7 million copies in print, many of those having been passed through families and so read by tens of millions. Okay, Valerie, we got like the official... American Girl, bio, but like fill us in. Who are you? 
where are you from and how did you come to write the ultimate cult classic, super best-selling book about growing up and shifting bodies when your background was not based in healthcare or medicine? Like, tell us where that comes from. I love it. You know, I think that my chief qualifications for writing a book like this is that I was a person who was who had really grown up in the culture of American Girl. I had been writing for that audience. Um, I had written catalogs. I had written a, a bit for the magazine. And so I really had an understanding of the audience and the tone and the tenor that we wanted to speak to them in. I think the other chief qualification I had to write a book like that is I am a female body having person. And anybody who is a female body having person has passed through this portal of time. And I think that for most of us, even when we're grown up ladies can remember very clearly how we felt about that time in our lives. So I didn't come from a background at that point of of writing nonfiction for children, but Pleasant Roland, who was the brilliant founder of American Girl, for some reason decided that I was the person to write this book. And I think it had uh, less to do with having an education in healthcare than it did having a sensibility about how we wanted to talk to girls and, you know, how we wanted them to feel about our voice in speaking to them. Can you say more about that? Because as someone myself who spends her career talking to girls, with girls, listening to girls and their people who love them, their families, their coaches, their teachers. What to you is the magic in speaking to girls and the people who love them in a way that they can best hear it? What was that that tone, that intentionality that allowed it to be so effective for these girls? When we sat in planning meetings talking about this book, the idea we had in our heads was that we wanted to embody the voice of your favorite aunt, somebody who was older, but wiser, but not your mom. And that was really key because I think that no matter what kind of a mother you've been and how your daughters regard you, there are moments in their lives where they really don't want to talk to you about some things. And they're changing bodies for some girls is not a topic that they're comfortable talking about with their mothers, much to the distress of all of us mothers who think we're like wildly progressive, groovy moms. You know, it's, it's horrible when, when your, your chatty seven-year-old suddenly clams up and you're trying to start a conversation about something important. And so I think we knew that we wanted girls to feel that they were talking or that they were hearing from somebody who was warm, who was accepting, who was nurturing but who is going to give you the straight dope, you know, somebody who is going to give you the facts. And we wanted to feel that we were speaking to them in a way that their parents would also trust, which was also important to us because it's a, you know, it's, it can be a sensitive area of discussion for a lot of families. And we wanted parents to also feel that they could trust their daughters with us. And I think American Girl had really, really built a foundation of of trust with girls and parents. You know, I think the other thing about um, writing the book that is kind of unusual is actually at the time that I wrote it, I did not have children. And maybe that would, would have been a smart prerequisite for the books. But I think actually in a way, it kind of worked in our favor. I mean, I didn't have 
I didn't have a parent's concerns or fears in a way. And I had maybe a a blind self-confidence that I had a bead on where girls were at that time. I was actually on bed rest with our first daughter when I wrote the book. I wrote most of it flat on my back in a hospital, um, which is, you know, a changing body story of a whole other sort. Well, you know, it's a perfect place to pick up the conversation because when you and I first connected, I I emailed you, it was maybe now three or four years ago. I had come to American Girl around 2011. And one of the things that I did was I got to update the care and keeping without really changing very much of it at all. But I got to do little things like add the concept of the internet, for instance, into the book, because right since between 1998 and and current day, a couple things have changed. And I remember connecting with you. One of the things that blew me away was that I said to you, we were talking about why you wrote it. And you explained to me you were on bed rest with your first daughter. And I had written my first book on maternity leave. So I was like, oh, I I feel even more bonded to this woman, right? And then I remember you saying, you know, there was this, it all started when there was this article in the New York Times and it reported on a study that said that girls were entering puberty younger than they ever had. And when you said that, I got chills up and down because That study came out in 1997, and it was when I was in my training for pediatrics. And it is the study that I cite more often than any other study in every book I write. And it was, the study was authored by a woman named Marsha Herman Giddens, and she basically saw in her pediatric practice, she was a nurse practitioner, and she saw in her pediatric practice that girls were entering puberty younger than they were taught that girls were supposed to enter puberty. And she thought it was just a neighborhood issue. She thought maybe there was something in the water, maybe there was something in the food supply. And what she decided to do was reach out to the American Academy of Pediatrics and see if she could query other practices. And she ended up creating this enormous study and documented for the very first time how early puberty was beginning. And when you explained to me, I remember the words you used. You said to me that you read the article and you thought, well, we need to do something about this at American Girl because this is our audience. These are the girls who read our books. And I just thought, it's such a no-brainer. If everyone in the world were to just meet people where, not just where they're at, but where they need to be, and that's what you did, right? Mm-hmm. You you read an article, you put two and two together, and you met girls where they were moving. They just didn't even realize they were moving there yet. Cara, I wish I had been the brilliant person who had put those things together, but that was actually Pleasant Roland. She had read that article, and she came into the office, and she said, we have to do something about this. These young girls are entering puberty. They have no idea what's going on. They're devel- they're emotionally unprepared. And at this point, especially, we, we had um, American Girl magazine. We were already getting letters from girls from the you know, privacy of their bedroom, writing us these, these heartbreaking letters, telling us that they were afraid, that they didn't understand what was coming. They were concerned that it was going to hurt. Mm-hmm. Um, and they had they had so much worry about what was coming. And um, and they were afraid sometimes to talk to their parents about it. 
And so we would get these letters in America. At some point, we had a, a, quite a pile of them. And it wasn't always related to menstruation. A lot of times it was just like, when am I going to get breasts? I think I'm getting a pimple. And, um, you know, or my mom says I need to have braces. And so, I mean, it was American Girl was already a place that girls went for information and for reassurance. And so I think all of that together with Pleasant's discovery of this research, just it all came together. And she's like, we're going to do this. We have to do this. I, I think she even said, we're the only people who can do this. Uh, and that was so right. And by the way, can we just take a moment? Can you imagine you think you're going to get a pimple? And so you write a letter and you put a stamp on the letter and you mail the letter in. I mean, you know, that, that was what life was like before text and email yes. and video chat, right? Yes. How quickly that pimple came and went before you ever got your response. And even though this age of girl that we're writing for, this age of girl we're talking about is a girl who's for whom her friends are, are, are super important. It's not always the kind of thing you, you want to talk about with your girlfriends either. I mean, sometimes you do, but not all girls feel comfortable talking to their friends about it either because it's a really private thing and, and you don't want to feel like you're the only one who doesn't know. And so the letters that are featured in the care and keeping of you are, were real letters that we were getting from girls already. So they gave us a roadmap. They told us, they told us what they needed. Hey, it's Cara. We all know puberty isn't always easy. One of the trickiest pieces of the puberty puzzle is boobs. When will I get them? Why are they so tender? And why does every bra out there seem to pull, push, pad, itch, scratch, or be so flimsy it doesn't do a thing? That's where Umla comes in. It's a company that makes puberty comfortable, a company I founded with my friend Julie. When our own daughters began the puberty journey, we couldn't find a decent starter bra anywhere. So we made one. It fits perfectly whether boobs are just starting to bud or they've been growing for a few years. We call it the Umbra. And it's game changing. The Umbra is made from buttery cotton that feels like second skin, ridiculously soft and so comfortable you'll forget you're wearing anything at all. Umbra's one-of-a-kind support comes from its patented layered design that creates gentle compression without any tight binding, which also means it doesn't need any bulky, awkward pads because it's built to seamlessly hide nipples and protect against those dreaded ouch moments throughout the day. Our daughters and their friends are done with puberty, but they still love and wear their Umbra's. It's why we say that the Umbra may be your first bra, but it will definitely be your favorite bra. Come say hi, look around, and find your Umbra, plus lots of other puberty info, at myoomla.com. That's M-Y-O-O-M-L-A dot com. Cara, lately I have been lying awake at night. I'm physically exhausted, but I can't sleep because my mind is so wired with everything going on between work and my family. So I've added magnesium breakthrough to my nightly routine and it actually helps calm my mind. It helps me get better sleep and I wake up feeling better rested. I'm less cranky and I'm more patient with my family and with you. Oh, I've noticed. And it's because unlike other magnesium supplements that might give one or two formulations of magnesium, 
Magnesium Breakthrough has seven. That's why you're sleeping so well and waking up refreshed. Now, dietary supplementation is always best, Vanessa. So that means eating your minerals and vitamins is the best way to get them in. But if you can't or you don't get enough, Magnesium Breakthrough is the way to go. It can also help digestion, though too much helps your digestion too much, which is not a good thing. It can support muscle recovery. So bye-bye, Charlie Horses. And it helps build dense bones, which is especially important for women approaching and in menopause. We have an exclusive offer for our listeners. You can go to buyoptimizers.com slash puberty, B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S.com slash puberty. And you can use the code PUBERTY10 during checkout to save 10%. That promo code is PUBERTY10 at buyoptimizers.com slash puberty. Your body and brain and family and business partner will thank you. Vanessa, we literally have three minutes to eat lunch every day. I am not joking. And the challenge is how to make it delicious and healthy and still fit into that tiny window. Our answer is Factors Ready to Eat Meals. They have been a godsend. We throw our Factor Meals in the microwave. It takes two minutes and out comes a gorgeous, fresh, never frozen meal. We both love the tamale vegetarian one. It's delish. There's a ton of options every week. There's 60 add-ons, breakfast, snacks, beverages. I love doing the wellness shots with my kids. They think it's hilarious. And I know they're getting vitamins and minerals in their bodies. So get meals on your table or at your desk in two minutes or less. Factor meals eliminate the hassle of prepping, cooking, and cleaning. You can customize with flexibility to get as much or as little as you need, and you can press pause or reschedule depending upon your lifestyle. So to order, go to factormeals.com slash puberty50 and use the code puberty50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That code is puberty50 at factormeals.com slash puberty50 to get 50% off your first box, 20% off your next box. And I am going to go do that right now because I need more factor meals in my refrigerator. Cara, my kids love Magic Spoon cereal. And even though it's cereal, they actually love it as a homework snack. The variety pack has four flavors, cocoa, fruity, frosted, and peanut butter. And fruity is the favorite flavor in my house. Now, this pack has zero grams of sugar, between 13 and 14 grams of protein, and between four and five grams of net carbs per serving. It's made with wholesome ingredients, no artificial flavors or dyes, and it's high in protein, gluten-free, grain-free, and soy-free. So a great choice, Vanessa. You can go to magicspoon.com slash puberty to grab a variety pack and try it today. And be sure to use our, you guessed it, promo code puberty at checkout to save $5 off your order. And Magic Spoon is so confident you're going to love their product. It's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they will refund your money. No questions asked. They do not want you to send their cereal back to them. Try a bowl of Magic Spoon cereal today at magicspoon.com slash puberty and use the code puberty to save $5. Hey, it's Vanessa. I started a company called Dynamo Girl and one of the coolest parts of my work is running our Dynamo Puberty Workshops for hundreds of families across the country. 
We teach the anatomy and physiology involved in puberty because so many adults never learned it and kids have so many questions about it. In our workshops, we also talk about the feelings involved in puberty. For kids, it's often tricky stuff around friendships and body image and social media and just being in our families. And for adults, it's the constant struggle of wanting to support our kids in the most loving ways we can, even when it feels like they just want us to be quiet. This December, we'll be running two virtual Dynamo workshops that will get to all those questions and more. On December 4th, join me and my Dynamo colleagues to learn about male puberty. And on December 11th, join us to learn about female puberty. People of all genders are welcome to attend all workshops. You can go to www.dynamogirl.com to learn more and register for our workshops or check out the show notes for links to register. We hope to see you there. You know those things you're too embarrassed to talk about when it comes to dating? Like when to say I love you, how to define the relationship. Well, We Met at Acme touches upon all of those subjects and more, and we get right into it with our guests and talk about their dating lives and also what not to do when it comes to dating because we're all kind of confused together. So you can tune in every Sunday to We Met at Acme and maybe you can learn a thing or two while I learn a thing or two. Valerie, what were the upsides about the fact that you weren't yet a parent? What were you able to do, do you think, without the the heavy burden or baggage of being a parent that allowed you to communicate with these, you know, millions of girls and families across the country? Were there things, because a lot of our audience are, are parents, and many of them are educators or coaches, but many of them are parents who are carrying their own baggage into these conversations with their kids. And so I'd love to hear from you about what were you unburdened with that allowed you to kind of to write this and communicate in a way because you were not yet a parent? Yeah. I mean, I think as much as this is a transformational time for girls, it is for the parents too, that suddenly they're going to have this child who has You've known the contents of their head and heart. You know how they think about things. And suddenly they're becoming a little mysterious to you. And I think also a lot of parents regard the onset of menstruation as being a time when they have to think about their daughters in a different way. And there's a lot of concern about when do we bring in the information about sexuality or maybe maybe if I don't talk about it, it won't happen. You know, I think there's a lot of fear that comes in for a lot of parents in this transformational time as well. And I didn't have a kid that age, so I wasn't afraid of it. I mean, I think I could clearly remember being that age myself and having a desire for certain kinds of information. So I think that I didn't have to overthink it in the way that, and I don't mean that in any kind of dismissive way. I mean, obviously it's very important how you have these conversations with your children, but I didn't, I didn't have to think about the consequences of it almost, you know, I didn't, um, I didn't have to think about whether I was giving them thoughts they hadn't already had, you know? It's um, it's amazing that you call out that specific example of um, when girls begin to get their periods that people start wondering about all the other conversations and specifically about sexuality. One of the most common things that I hear, and I'm wondering if you hear this too, um, is a comment or a question around sex. Are you going to do a book about sex? Why didn't you include sex? You know, all of these. And for my two cents, coming into this project 
you know, a decade and a half after you began it. I think one of the most powerful things about the book is that it doesn't discuss sex, that it's, it is about a very specific time and process. And there are plenty of other books that can get into sex, but sometimes you just need what you need in the moment and too much is too much. And I'm wondering if that's what drove that decision. Absolutely. And and, and you see that in all the stages and ages and stages of your children growing up that they'll ask you a simple question. And oftentimes, especially modern parents that we are, we will deliver way more information than they really wanted. And I think we did a lot of focus groups with girls and their mothers before we wrote the book. And so we had a sense of of sort of where most girls are. And, and, and it's hard to generalize because some girls are information housed. They're just like, give it to me, give it all to me. <laughs> um, but the majority of girls I think are like, they like to have it sort of delivered to them in little, little stages, you know? So if they ask you, um, when am I going to get my period? It doesn't necessarily mean that they want to talk about sex. They're just wondering, is it going to hurt? Is the blood going to be bright red or is it going to be brown? What if I get it when I'm at school? And I think that we were hoping to give girls a developmentally, emotionally appropriate amount of information and trusting that parents would know that there were other resources for them that would be there for their girls when they wanted more. Yeah, I mean, I always say, because we run these puberty workshops and families want to know what resources we trust. And of course, the Care and Keeping of You series is, you know, our favorite series. And I like to describe it as a very gentle entry into a conversation about puberty. Because the other books that we recommend are the Roby Harris books, which are not gentle. <laughs> They're like right, lots yeah. of naked drawings of kind of like ordinary middle-aged adults, like, and they're sort of naked bodies. And my kids like took one look at those and were like, can you please put these away in a closed <laughs> cabinet and like, right. don't open it. Whereas the Care and Keeping of You series, it's like a really gentle, easy way to get into it. And it's not the end of the conversation, but it's a really comfortable way to begin the conversation. I'm curious if there are some things that you had to fight for to get into the original book. Are there things that were kind of like, do we keep it in? Do we cut it? Was there anything controversial that you really fought to have included in the book? I think the, the section that we had the most heated discussion about was about whether or not to include the spread. And I think you know which spread I mean. It's the one with the with the illustrations of, of the external anatomy. And I think some young girls really don't understand what is going on down there. And I think a really tasteful illustration showing them, you know, the basic structures of their external genitalia was really important. But we did have a lot of discussions about whether or not that was going too far. And Even a discussion about tampons was a little bit, you know, something that we really knew we had to be careful about because there are plenty of parents for whom tampons just are more than they want to give their child the option of, frankly. So really those sections, and I think the other section that we had to have a lot of discussion about was the section on eating disorders. Huh. Because eating disorders are complex. They're complex. And you know, I think at least at that time, I think for younger girls, many had not had an exposure to that kind of subject matter. But we knew from the letters that we 
we knew from the letters we got that plenty of girls were struggling with this already. So we did talk about whether or not this was something American girls should take on in a book like this. And I, I feel really comfortable where we came out in that section, I think. Can we go back to the spread for a second? Yes. Can you guys, so Valerie described the spread in her language. Cara, can you describe the spread for those of those folks who haven't poured over the tasteful illustration? What is included in the spread? Mm -hmm. What wasn't included in the spread? And by spread, we mean the external female reproductive and sex organs. I wish I had brought my book in so I could look exactly at what was included, but I can tell you what wasn't included. So one thing that wasn't included was the clitoris. And this has been very interesting in my um, history with the book because there was a world of feedback about why are the labia labeled and why is the vagina, the vaginal opening labeled, but why isn't the clitoris labeled? And I'd love to know what that conversation was like. I will say that when I came on, it was very easy for my editor to say, oh, there's now there's a doctor at the table and she says you have to put clitoris in there. So just put clitoris in there. And it was not even a conversation and now clitoris is in there. But I think that was because the conversation had evolved over the last 15 years to the point where actually eight and nine and 10 year old girls were considered, it was considered appropriate for them to actually look at a fully labeled diagram. And I, I don't think in 1998 that would have gone over so well. And so I'd love to know if it was a conversation when it's, you published it. Certainly it. Was a, it certainly was a conversation. And I think for the editorial team, it, it did feel like a bridge too far. And I think judging by the mail we got after the publication of the book, for some families, what we did present was already too far. Oh, yes. So, <laughs> it right? still is. And let me tell you, I, you know, and, and we'll get to this in a minute, but there, you know, you and I have bonded over the commentary that comes in through all these different venues. Now, TikTok is the latest one. And um, I think the limited content that's in there scarred or tortured many, many girls and families um, in ways that we never realized. And we can talk about that and laugh about that in a second. But yes, I, I don't think there was space for clitoris there at the time. I'm very happy it's there now. Um, yeah. It's a pretty simple line drawing. It's just the external genitalia that you would see if someone was sitting with their legs spread and it's just lines. It's nothing more graphic than that. And it's interesting, Valerie, because even a few years ago when, so my company's called Dynamo Girl, when we were running Dynamo Girl puberty workshops, at first we did not teach the external female reproductive organs and sex organs because our health and sex educators felt that it was too confusing to both describe the internal and external. And at a certain point, my colleague, Mary Patratti, who's a social worker, said to me, based on all of the research, we are inadvertently, by not teaching about it, conferring like a kind of a shame. Because if you, if you can't talk about it, if you don't talk about it, kids might assume that, you know, there's something wrong with it, or there's something wrong with their having it, or there's something wrong with their talking about it. But even just a few years ago in my own work, it was an uncomfortable 
decision. Or or they come to the pediatrician and they want to say what's wrong and they don't know the names of the parts, which is an amazing thing. And so it was very revolutionary to have just even the most minimally labeled drawing in there. And what's interesting is when we do the diagrams for our workshops, when we show the girls, you know, the labia and the opening to the vagina and we show them the diagram, they're actually pretty chill about it. It's actually the parents for whom seeing that is much harder and more uncomfortable, which is, you know, a larger and more fascinating message about where kids are and where adults are in terms of their comfort with talking about this and looking at this stuff. Right. I, I think it's really important to, yeah, to, to acknowledge the, the context of the time when the, when the original book was published. And we were already doing something that felt fairly courageous. And um, yeah, we think about it. And, and it, I do think it is very important for young women to have the language to be able to talk about their bodies. To, it's a way of owning all the parts of you. And um, I'm so glad that we are where we are now. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, as, as parents, we're hopefully feeling a little braver too, you know? <laughs> right. I mean, there are a couple of drawings in there that really move the needle. The tampon drawings were enormously important. You know, this, <laughs> a very similar version exists in every single tampon box that is ever sold in a grocery store or a pharmacy. Right, yes. <laughs> right, right now, Valerie, what she's doing is she's opening that crazy teeny You're, tiny it's, insert. It's like a, it is. It's like wallpaper. Right. It's like a map to a continent. It's just like, it's vast. It's vast. It is amazing. And there is a set of drawings in there that walks you through exactly what to do. And no one opens that little package insert. And so putting those images in a book and saying, this is okay. If you're going to put something in your body, you need to know where it's going. Here's where it's going. And by the way, here's how you take it out right? Which is a huge piece of tampon use is you can't leave it in for too long. So that was epic. The other thing is the breast staging spread, right? So I think this pair of pages is probably the most popular pair of pages in the entire book. And girls will constantly tell me that they spent hours staging themselves. You educated people about the tanner stages in ways that pediatricians never knew how to. And it's amazing. And really, it's a wonderful sort of treatment of a very, very simple process. And And I think the hope was that we would would just reassure girls that that wherever they were along the spectrum of development, they were normal. They're normal, you know? And I think maybe girls didn't know that they don't all come in overnight. You know, they, you know, just sprout them overnight. You know, it's going to be a little more gradual than that. So I think it's exactly very reassuring, right. very reassuring for girls. I mean, the, the pictures just, you know, even without the words, the, the pictures in that book. So we talked about the clitoris. Was there anything that didn't make it into the book that you fought for that it was ultimately decided as you said, was a bridge too far. Is there anything that you wish had made it in at that stage? Or did you feel like you had fought your battles and gotten in what you wanted to get in? You know, it's hard to be, you know, I I should say actually be very easy to get revisionist in my thinking at this point. I want to just stress it. I'm 62 years old and I wrote this book in 1997 and 98. So my memory is not perfect for all of these things. I mean, I think the one thing that we, that we talked about a lot is I think I would have liked to have gone a little, a little further in the discussion of dietary choices. 
even at that point, I knew that there were a lot of girls in our age group who were vegetarian. Not as many, not as many vegans at that point as there are now. But I really wished in a way that we could have talked more about dietary diversity. But I think the, the sense was that for most of our audience of readers, that a more standard, you know, omnivores diet was more likely to be the norm. So I think that um, ultimately our editorial team, and we didn't, you know, we didn't have a lot of argument about any of these things, but we did have discussions about it. And um, I, I feel fine about really where we ended up. We, we didn't dive deeply into some of these areas. We allowed that there was a, you know, that there was a diverse way of eating. We did talk about vegetarianism a little bit. We did allow that some girls were vegetarian and that it is possible to have a fully nutritious diet that way. But uh, we didn't talk about veganism. We didn't talk about food allergies or sensitivities. At that point, I think that hopefully in further revisions, that might be something we'd consider because I think that is much more the reality of a lot of families now. That right. especially I mean, with young girls that they have tremendous you know, ethical issues around choosing not to eat animal products that we should acknowledge. Yeah, I mean, the cultural conversation around food and environmental consciousness has changed and, and, you know, ethnic diversity and how that's reflected in the food choices that we all make. That's all much more part of the conversation in a way than it was. Yes. Well, and and 22 years ago. And when the voice is not your mom, right, it's the cool aunt, but it's not your mom. It resonates a lot more loudly in certain ways. And having raised a young vegetarian, I will tell you that um, just that topic alone it deserves a voice that is not your mom because it's hard to teach young people who choose to eat vegetarian diets to do so healthfully. And just a moment on a paragraph on how to do that and where the resources are, it's, it's, um, it would go a long way. And allergies too. Uh, I think that's such a good point that the, you know, there's a, a lot of space for empathy around allergy. A lot of kids are unable to eat a wide variety of foods because of allergy and just bringing awareness to that. It's a little detail, but it's a little detail that I think would go really far. I want to go to TikTok and the current moment (laughs) for a second. Um, And I want to talk about when, when we were scheduling this interview, that same day, I received a text with a TikTok that when you and I were having a back and forth, you also sent me the same TikTok and said, if, in case you missed it, this is pretty hilarious. And the TikTok was made um, by a young woman named Kate Steinberg. And it's, it's been out a couple of weeks now. It's got about 7 million views. Um, where I got lost was in the 28,000 comments. Um, I don't know if you have read them, but I sort of went down that rabbit hole. Um, the, the TikTok is a very, very short clip of Kate. And the lead in text says, every mom in 2001. And Kate is dressed up in mom glasses and she is walking into her daughter's room and she is handing her the care and keeping of you. And then you cut to Kate is the daughter in her bed. And she is essentially reading the book and saying, what the? And it's a very funny moment. And the comments are incredible and they really range. They start off very sweet and warm and benign. You know, um, why is this a universal core memory for so many of us? This book is iconic. 
But very quickly, the comments get intense. Um, People talk about buried memories. One comment is, my mom just handed this book to me and walked away, which of course was never the intent of the book, right? It was meant to be a conversation starter. And then it goes to gender stereotyping and heteronormative content and body image. As you talked about, you know, is there enough discussion around body image? Because that was a big thing to begin talking about in that book. But is there enough? You know, You and I have laughed over email about our role in torturing some kids. And I think we say that lightly. We we have four children between the two of us. And I certainly have tortured my two children by writing these books. That's for sure, um, because very embarrassing when your mom is part of this book line. And yet there's gratitude in that torture. But in the greater public, I don't think it's torture in that sense. I think it's our intent to help them get over a finish line or to get down a path, realizing that it's a moment that is so fraught that we're okay being part of the narrative of how hard it is. And um, I just don't know how you take those comments because that's how I've chosen to take those comments is there's mostly gratitude and a little bit of pain. And for anyone who's feeling the pain my heart breaks, but I also am totally fine with being the one to be the recipient of the pain if the people who are raising you and love you don't have to be. Yeah, I, I read a few of the comments. I really actually don't have a, a high degree of um, of comfort with, I, I never read reviews on Amazon, I never do any that kind of thing. But I think it says as much about really the power of this moment for girls at that age as it does about the book itself. I mean, it's just... It's a confusing, overwhelming, exciting, frightening, fraught time. Whether you had the book or you didn't have the book, I think that uh, that it's become such a flashpoint for girls in their development is is really fascinating. <laughs> and I, I think that again, if it hadn't been this book, if it had been our bodies ourselves, an, an, another book that doesn't exist, it, it, that that you know, I think that it, it really has more to do with really the the power intensity of change emotionally, physically, all of that at that time. And it's, and we were just happy to be there with them, Car, when, when they're living it, you know, it's. I know. And do you notice, I notice that my daughter will occasionally post, my mom writes these books and your daughter, I notice, will occasionally post. And what that says to me is, even though it was, a tricky time for them too, and especially tricky because we were at the epicenter of it. They're pretty proud. And there's that, there is such a sweetness when I see that. It really actually brings tears to my eyes when I see any comments that, that acknowledge it. Absolutely. I think at least for, for my daughters, it has as much to do with like the reaction they get from their peers. And, <laughs> I mean, I think that's where the, that's where the pride comes from because they're, they have, you know, their friends are like, oh my gosh, your mom, she's so awesome. And they're like, really? Is she? I guess so. If you say she is, I guess she is. But I think- <laughs> Valerie, but- when, when I taught sex ed in my daughter's sixth grade class, she was under the desk and everyone else was like so excited to hear everything. And when, when we left the room, they all ran up to her and said, your mom is so awesome. And she said, 
what are you talking about? And that is it, right? It is um, It is so funny. So the, the celebrity, mini celebrity status for a moment. But you know, even as awesome, I mean, I don't know how it was for you and your daughter, but as awesome and cool of an aunt mom, aunt slash mom that I am, my daughters did not want to talk to me about this. Either. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, because I mean, they're normal. I, I that's, that's so hard. I yes. try so hard. Yes. I'd be like, do you, do you have any questions for me? And I, one of my daughters, I think it was my daughter said, mom, I have the book. <laughs> <laughs> In this very droll way, you know. So well, not only do they have the book, I mean, they have, you know, now they have the internet. So. Well, that's exactly right. So if you ever needed confirmation that it's completely typical and normal for a child to not want to talk to their parents, our children did not want Even to talk to Even our children. That's right. As amazing and awesome and progressive as we are, our daughters want to talk to us about it. That's exactly right. Well, I think you guys put out in the world something really important and really beautiful. And I can speak for millions and millions of girls and families who have incredible gratitude. So even if your children are rightfully ambivalent about it, which is developmentally appropriate for them to be so, I will say there's incredible gratitude. And as Cara said to me, the first piece of advice she ever gave me, which reflects what you said, Valerie, when you talk about puberty, for some people, it will always be too much. And for some people, it will always be too little. And I think you beautifully found a place somewhere in the middle that could reach as many people as possible and teach girls about their bodies in a really empowering um, and accessible way. So we like to close our podcasts with just like a practical puberty piece of advice, something that is a takeaway that someone can walk away and feel like they have an actionable piece of advice from each of us. And Valerie, I'm wondering if you want to start or if you want to go last with a a piece of practical puberty advice. Hmm. Practical advice. I mean, I think what more than anything, what I hope that young girls will think about and will embrace is that they are more than the sum of their body parts. They need to embrace themselves as whole people, which has to do with your body, your mind, your heart. And I think that especially at this transformational time of change, it's easy for girls to get fixated on a body part. And you are so much more than a body part or a collection of body parts. And that keeping that holistic view and holding yourself in that way, I think is so, so important. And I really, really hope that this book helps girls embrace that. I love that. Cara, do you want to do yours? Yeah, I'm just going to take yours and build on it and say that I think that applies to boys too. And I think that the conversation that you began on a national level so many years ago with girls, you also began it with boys because by virtue of the fact that you put the language out there, you put the text out there, the illustrations out there, Parents of kids, regardless of their gender, started to begin to realize they could have these conversations. And so I would say to parents of boys, they are more than the sum of their body parts. And sometimes we forget that they care about their body parts and their body processes in the same way that girls do. So, yeah. And I think I would just close by saying that 
sometimes to empower people and to make change, you have to make brave choices and you have to take risks. What you all did to write this book and to have the book continue to evolve as time evolves is really courageous. And I think if we want to do the work to empower kids, not just as parents, but even before we're parents as as writers, as adults, as teachers and educators, sometimes it, it takes courage and it takes a kind of a leadership. And so there's an enormous gratitude for that. And for anyone who's listening, who's thinking, you know, there is a conversation I should be having with this kid that I care about. I would encourage you to have that conversation because you can see from Valerie and from Cara how much those conversations, how many people they've they've impacted at a very seminal moment, a very powerful, very complex moment in their lives. So Valerie, so much gratitude for you. Thank you for, for joining us. Thank you for the book that you wrote and for the beautiful things that you continue to do to educate children. We are so grateful. Thank you for inviting me. This has been fantastic. Well, we love knowing you. I love knowing you. And Vanessa, who is like my found sister, she's going to say the same thing as soon as we hang up. So thank you for joining us. Thank you, Valerie. Thank you for asking me. Thanks so much for listening. You can follow us anywhere you get your podcasts or check out our Instagram at The Puberty Podcast. If you have questions or stories to share, email us at thepubertypodcast at gmail.com. And for more puberty info, check out myoomla.com or dynamogirl.com. Bye. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.